Don't feel your happy hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I am Olga Peters, your host, and as always, this is the show where we talk about how things in Montpelier shake out for the rest of us. And as it seems like we have been talking for the last two years, we are also talking about how the pandemic shakes out for many of us. I want to welcome it to the show regular co-host and contributor, Emily Kornheiser. Hey, Emily, how are you? I'm okay. Good morning, Olga. Nice to see you. Good morning. Good to see you too. Yes. And for those who are hearing this on Friday, we're actually recording this on Monday morning and it's totally like Monday morning sleepy vibe here. So we're going to have to wake ourselves up. Um, I also want to welcome to the show, Carrie Brown from the Vermont Commission on Women. Hello, Carrie. It's so good to see you again. Hi, Olga. It's great to be here. Thank you. And Al Johnson-Kurtz from Change the Story is also here as well. I'm so glad you can join us. Thanks for having me, Olga. And we are revisiting. We've talked to, I know we've talked to Carrie before about this, about the pandemic's effect on women, especially in the workforce. But we wanted to revisit it because as we've gone through the pandemic, I think... um, Emily has actually talked about the legislature calling this the she, the she session. Oh, um, the legislature did not invent that. Oh, you did? Creative. No, no, no. No, you that's did? like a Oh, thing okay. Well, the, I'm, gonna, I'm giving Emily credit. Thanks so. for the credit. <laughs> <laughs> um, be, because we have talked a lot about um, the pandemic and, and uh, women, but as we've gone through it and we've learned some more, I wanted to talk to uh, Carrie and Al just about, you know, what else have we learned? And as we're coming out of this pandemic, hopefully, you know, new phase coming out of it, however we want to say that, um, what do we need to have in place so that um, whatever we've learned can actually be something we've learned and moved on from rather than just like, oh, well, that was a blip and everybody got excited. (laughs) Um, So Carrie, I'd love to start with you as you've gone through this pandemic and as you've been, been doing your work, what have you seen um, and what was maybe new to you now that you didn't see when the pandemic started? Well, I think the really big thing that um, I'm seeing now is, just um, how uh, how wrong we were in our predictions about kind of how long this would last and where we would be at this point. I mean, I think that the last time we spoke, I don't remember exactly when that was, but um, I think we all would have thought that by this point, things would look really different somehow. And we would be, you know, you mentioned this idea of coming out of the pandemic. I mean, that I don't even know if that's a real concept that we can even talk about anymore. And so, oh, oh, go oh ahead. I'm just going to jump in quickly. Yeah. Just what you said made me think. I, I think one reason I struggle with new phase or coming out of the pandemic is because for some people, in their minds, it's over. Oh, and for right. some That's people, true. they're still being impacted. And I think even just that uh, yeah. speaks to how uneven this whole experience has been for people. So yeah. Sorry, Carol. Yeah, exactly. No, I think you're absolutely right. And so, so if, you know, what, when we look at things like data, like unemployment numbers and how many jobs have been lost and all that kind of stuff, um, we're not, we don't necessarily have a whole lot more information now than we did several months ago. You know, it became clear pretty early on that 
in terms of how who is being impacted at, at work and through unemployment and things like that, that women are much more impacted um, as are people of color. And that's just remained true. Um, so now it's really more about, well, what, what are the structural inequities that were in place before this all started, which we were talking about a year ago, two years ago too. And what can we possibly do to try to, um, to really address those? And, you know, we've been, this isn't a new theme. We've been talking about this a lot, but that those are much, much harder to get at. And so we're seeing things like, um, like before the pandemic started, women were doing way more work at home than men. They were doing more work taking care of children, taking care of elderly folks, sick folks, um, cleaning the house, you know, making arrangements for who needs to be at what appointment and carpools and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and this is really expresses something very fundamental in our culture about what we think women should be doing, what we think men should be doing. And so we see that translated into the kind of work for money that women do and that men do. Women are more likely to be the ones doing the jobs that involve cleaning and taking care of people and changing diapers and, <laughs> and all that kind of thing. And they're you know really poorly paid for that. And so, I mean, for me, what I really want us to stress and focus on is looking at the value that we put on work and how we how we compensate it, how we reward it, and to try to once and for all, get rid of this idea that the kind of work that women have traditionally done at home and are still doing at home for no money is only worth a little bit of money out in the, in the world when they're doing it for people outside of their families, so. Thank you. Um, I remember, I think even last time you were on Carrie, which was quite a while ago, um, was, I had this tremendous sense from my place of like sitting at my desk privilege and talking about these things. I had this tremendous amount of hope for all these things that were being unveiled or revealed to a lot more people. And we've, we talked on the show pretty constantly about how the cracks are widening and more people can see them. And that's going to mean massive structural change. Cause once people see the truth, how could we possibly go on the way we've been? And you know, the first thing to get pulled out of the, you know, deal in Congress was the care, the, you know, increased pay and protection yep. for caretaking work. Yep. And as we have seen, you know, the governor um, pull back on action on COVID, we see the people most impacted are all of the mothers staying home while their kids' schools shut down because of, you know, increased cases. And all of it's just, I don't know where to go from here because I had this story that it was really just that people didn't understand how hard it was, um, which was totally, I, you know, I mean, you two have both devoted, Alan Carey, like devoted your careers to getting people to understand these inequities. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. I don't mean yeah. to be downer here on Monday morning, but. No, I, I really, I really agree. And I, you know, when I, when I was thinking about this show and this conversation, I was having a hard time thinking about, well, how do we, how do we be positive here and how do we, because that's, it, it's exactly what you say. And just because people know about it doesn't mean that they're interested in changing it. And so <clears throat> um, I think that, you know, people who have some power to make structural changes, you know, 
for example, people in the legislature uh, <laughs> have an opportunity to, to be the ones who understand now and say, okay, well, in this case, this means what we're going to do. So for instance, when we're considering how we support childcare, then, and how we fund childcare, looking at how we need a lot more money and we need a lot more resources and we need, we need you know, the childcare is in, an, everyone's in a staffing crisis, but in childcare, it's, it's insane, right? I mean, I was on a, I was on a call like this not too long ago and there were two or three people in that meeting who had their kids at home with them and they were juggling their kids because their childcare had closed because of lack of staffing that day. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, those are the kinds of things where um, I know that, that uh, organizations around the state are working on ways to address that that staffing crisis, but in a lot of cases, it's really going to come down to they need to be paid more money and they need to have better working conditions, which of course we're seeing in so many other jobs right now. Yeah. I do want to jump in just, you know, there's a question about what can be done. And I want to share that um, the Vermont Commission on Women changed the story and our partners, Vermont Works for Women and the Vermont Women's Fund this past year worked with a team of researchers from UMass Amherst to produce data about the sociological impacts of COVID-19 on Vermont households. And one of the questions that was asked was about what policies or resources would be most helpful to manage the impacts of COVID-19. And the top answer from respondents across income levels was stimulus payments, direct payments to Vermonters to support households. And that was something that um, the pandemic showed could have tremendous impacts. It lifted 11.7 million people nationally out of poverty to do those direct stimulus payments. And um, I think that we need more of that at this point. We need to separate people's ability from to work from their ability to live. And that's mm-hmm you know, just for in terms of a structural change, that's what Vermonters are demanding and there's big push for it right now. And I think that that could be something that could tremendously shift um, the livelihoods for our neighbors and community members. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's probably worth pointing out um, and, and I'd love your thoughts on this, everybody. But what, what you were just saying, Al, um, made me think about some of the the state of working Vermonters reports that the Public um, Assets Institute puts out. And I think it was 2018, 2019, they talked about how the wages in Vermont, especially when you compare them to New England, are not up to our cost of living. Mm-hmm. And so what, what you just said, Al, and what about the UMass um, research and then those reports, but they make me think of with these stimulus payments, probably one thing we're not talking about enough is that our weight, we almost like we, we were going into the pandemic with an economic gap and now we've like got to make up that gap plus whatever Mm -hmm. the pandemic created. And Mm -hmm. that's, that just feels so deep to me in many ways. I don't know Mm -hmm. how that resonates with any of you. I've been, you know, the other sort of um, like sociological trope that goes along with she session is the great resignation. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
thinking about in the context of a country and a state where we have very, very, very few people in unionized jobs and the folks that are mostly in unionized jobs are mostly in unionized jobs where they can't strike. Um, mm. So public sector jobs, for instance. And so I think it's really hard for us to get our heads around what all of these resignations mean, all of these people saying like the policy, the next step policy implications of I can't possibly make this work work in my life is much, feels much vaguer because we don't have, you know, someone with a picket sign telling us what it means. Um, and so figuring out what the next steps are from there gets really, really complicated and confusing and lets in so much other noise about what's needed to do something about it. And so like whatever pundit picks it up can have their own inter or politician can have their own interpretation of what their great resignation means and what the policy implications of it are. But I think as Al said, regardless of what it means and what the next steps are to sort of shift to the next economy we might be living in, people still need to be able to live in during that. Yeah, I think this is one of those those things where we really don't know what's going on with this great resignation, and we're not going to be able to to know for a while. But um, I, I'm not an economist. Uh, Al is kind of an economist. Maybe they have a better idea about this. But um, <laughs> if we have what like three percent unemployment in Vermont, we have incredibly low unemployment which means that it's not like people are sitting at home going, I don't want a job. Those jobs are not for me. They're working. And we still don't have people to do all of these jobs that, that we need done just to kind of keep things going. I mean, just to me, it suggests there is something really, really off in the whole system. Something is just out of whack. And uh, I don't know what we do about that, but it may be that we have to go through some big readjustment period. It's probably going to be really rough. Well, I haven't had a chance to look recently, and I used to be very diligent about this, but um, there's the unemployment rate and then there's the rate of folks who are not employed. And those yeah, are two true. very, very different things. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they're closer to each other than usual in Vermont's. I think tend to be further apart than a lot of states. Mm -hmm. um, and we've talked a lot about how that sort of large group of folks who are not looking for work, um, who aren't counted as unemployed, mm -hmm. are tend to be women in Vermont. Um, but I yeah. haven't looked at those numbers in the last year. So what are those looking like? Carrie, I saw you jump. Did you want to make a correction on that? No, not a, not a correction. Just, um, well, it, we don't we don't know about those people in Vermont, right? Right. We we know that about twenty eight thousand people left the workforce in Vermont in twenty twenty. But uh, when I asked the Department of Labor, who are those people? How do we? Why did they leave? Do you know anything about them? They don't know. They don't know, and it's because they're just. I mean, they're you know you know all all the reasons why it's hard to get that that kind of data, but it shouldn't be. You know, we should be able to understand that. We know that nationally, a lot of women left the workforce completely mm -hmm. during the pandemic. So there's no particular reason to think that that didn't happen in Vermont as well, but we just don't actually know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, did you have a specific question about that, Emily? Because I'm happy to- I just wondered if we, if anyone has a current number on what the number of folks out of the workforce rather than the 
that um, what that rate looks like right now. I don't have that, but maybe when we take the break, we could try to find that. Carrie. Or we can just stick in the show notes later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Follow up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the point about women making up more of you know the discouraged workers number or people who are um, who have left the workforce completely. Um, we know from our previous research that um, that is uh, that those numbers are largely um, larger. Women. One reason I have been so focused on like what policies we may want to change or put into place um, going forward is because one of my concerns is, and I think this goes to a little bit what Carrie said about just because people know about something doesn't mean they want to change it, is when, when folks are feeling discombobulated, when their world has been upheaved, um, if that's the right use of that word. Um, it is such a human instinct to cl- to cling to what you knew and what mm-hmm. you understood, even if it's the devil you know. <laughs> and so I'm, I want to make sure as we go through this pandemic and as we learn from it, um, that we don't just go back to what was comfortable so that we can get out of the discomfort of all the upheaval and all the uncertainty that has been caused by the pandemic. Um, Carrie or, or Al, can you, can you speak to that at all or, or any, any thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, one thing that comes to mind for me is just how the great resignation um, leads to an opportunity for a lot of mass movement and, you know, it's kind of like you were saying, Emily, like it's, it's almost like a strike without any um, leadership, like organized leadership. And um, so I think it's key for legislators to pay attention to where folks are showing up and turning out for, um, for rallies, for existing organizing that's happening in the state so that um, those messages can come through loud and clear. Um, I was just at a rally. It was at 5.30 a.m. Um, at the state house to extend the GA um, housing program. And there were 40, maybe 50 people there at the crack of dawn with, um, you know, to support some of the folks who had been sleeping out at the state house um, to, to um, advocate for extending that program to make sure that folks in our community can be housed um, as the pandemic continues. So I think that we're seeing, you know, there's no shortage of groups and organizations and folks kind of saying, here's what we need and um, pushing for solutions. And for listeners who want to learn more about the conversation around GA housing, we did a show about two months ago. I have no time anymore. It was I would say it was seven episodes ago or so, but Josh Davis was there and that's probably the easiest way to go find it in our archives. I also am, you know, thinking about the great resignation, thinking about how we used family, like we used unemployment insurance as a family medical leave policy when we didn't have one, Um, thinking about sort of care infrastructure and what that means. I'm also has... Have you all been in conversation with anyone who's looking at um, the fact that a lot of the sort of traditional women's work, the caretaking work, the child care and the elder care and the 
food service are those jobs that were really on the front lines of the pandemic and a lot of folks with lingering effects of COVID are mm-hmm. going to be women in Vermont and what that what that means. Has we even started that conversation yet? Yeah, that is, that's not a conversation that I've been part of. And um, what a grim thought that is. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> I warned you when it started about where I was today. Um, I have not been in conversation with folks who are looking at the gendered impacts of the lingering effects of COVID. That is um, deeply troubling and I think will have ramifications for years to come if that is um, in fact the case. And I don't know if, you know, I know there was a big push at one point to disaggregate the um, positive rates by race. I don't even remember if I ever saw them disaggregated by gender. Um, they are. Yeah, they are. The Department yeah. of Health has right. been regularly okay. reporting on that. Yeah. Okay. And they were at the beginning, it was higher for women, um, which probably had to do with more women being tested. And it's really kind of like leveled mm-hmm. out. It's been pretty level for even for a long time. And I know in other states, um, in my paid work, I work a lot with nonprofits in other states and the, the gendered um, relationship to engaging in safety protocols was really poignant, especially, in, I mean, here, but even more so in some other states. And there were some really like amazing public health campaigns about like, be a tough cowboy, wear a mask. Um, but the <laughs> I'll share some of them with you later. They were like, anyway, they're amazing, but in a lot of different directions. Um, and so I don't know if that also might've sort of equalized the impact, but that's, that's something that I'm gonna dig into learning more about after this. Carrie and, and Al, what we, we've touched on a lot of different areas in this conversation. Are there parts of the conversation that you feel have been missing? that need to come to light? Um, so something that I've been talking a lot about lately is um, w- what this has really made clear for me is how dependent our entire economy is on unpaid labor and, um, and how that's, that's really been true forever. And you know, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say we can look back to the beginning of this country when we used enslaved people's labor to build everything and then outlawed slavery and got very creative and clever about finding other ways to get people to work for no money or for just a little bit of money. And, and women have really always been um, victims of that. And, you know, I think if, there was a time when maybe you had a family uh, running a farm and supporting themselves that way. And everybody was physically based at home and working at different things at home. And then things shifted in our society and people started going out of the home to earn money, but women stayed back at the home, still doing all the work that had to be done at home. And so I, I think that that's part of why people might understand what's happening, but they don't necessarily want to change it is because we have all this work, this caregiving work and this house, household home-based work that has to get done somehow. And if, if women aren't gonna do it for free, 
what's going to happen? You know, somebody has to take care of the children. And if, if we don't have good childcare, then people are going to do it at home, which means they're not going to be going to work and earning money. And, and to, to change that, it would involve such a radical restructuring of our brains and, and how we look at what needs to be done that it's just really hard for people to do that. But, you know, the fact is that it is exploitation of people who are not necessarily in a position to make the changes themselves. So our economy has to have somebody take care of children. And so if it's going to be people doing it for no money, okay, you know, we'll just keep on doing that. Yeah. And I mean, I just think about um, the need for shorter work weeks as well mm. to be able to take care of things in the home, shorter work weeks for, pe- for people of all genders and just different expectations about what working full time and what um, amount of work should earn enough to live. <laughs> um, that relationship, I think, is just deeply skewed. And it means that we end up outsourcing so much of the, you know, for those of us who are in a higher income level, it means we end up outsourcing so much of the work that um, of the home. And then we're needing to pay other people a lower um, wage to do that work if we're not going to do it ourselves. So I just, all of these relationships are just deeply out of whack and are leading to the situation that we have now. I think I also, you know, just with the prompt of what is coming to the top, I want to go back to the um, study that we did and just speak to the mental health impacts of the pandemic. And um, this was something that also jumped to the top uh, and in my reading of the findings of that study, um, one in four of our respondents, there were 500 respondents reported experiencing a panic attack in the previous four weeks before um, answering the survey. And one in three reported moderate or severe anxiety or depression. And that 18 to 24 year old age group reported the highest levels of mental health challenges with half reporting panic attacks in the previous four weeks and nearly 40% reporting moderate or severe anxiety and depression. And so the pandemic has you know, increased um, just stress on people in this way that we can measure that we saw with this study. And, um, and it's related to income. It's related to um, ability to meet, you know, people's needs financially. And um, we saw that the mental health concerns were inversely proportional to income. So um, we saw that as people's income went up, that they experienced less stress. And, uh, and I think that's something that needs to be talked about as well, because it's not just that people don't have money. It's that when you don't have money, it causes health impacts, severe health impacts. And, uh, everybody deserves to live. Everybody deserves to, um, live without harm to our bodies. Chronic stress of poverty causes PTSD. Like that's yeah. Like, and then that be like, and that then has epigenetic markers for PT. I mean, it's really, it's, yeah. it's deeper into our bodies and our lives than I think um, even folks experience it are able to give credit for. That's definitely the wrong way to explain that. But, um, and we have an I, opportunity to shift that right now. Yes. 
You yeah. know, as we saw from the survey respondents, direct mm-hmm. payments to people to support, um, to, to alleviate the stress that's leading to severe health impacts. So, yeah, no, therapy is not. And I've, what I've seen is that as we hear about this increased stress and increased mental health challenges that people are having, I see these calls for increased mental health responses to it rather than getting to the root causes of the stress that's causing it. And so I don't think we're going to like suicide hotline our way out of this situation that we are in in America. Um, and that's disproportionately impacting. And I, I will health. say that mental greater mental health support was the number two um, call from uh-huh. across all income brackets. But what that means can be very different for different people. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree with you, Emily, that we're not going to suicide hotline our way out of it or teletherapy our way out of it. But um, but also the state of mental health care is is just, you know, uh, unconscionably terrible. So so that's but that's a whole separate thing, you know. (laughs) And so I think I think that a lot of people who answered that survey probably were thinking about things like I need to be able to I need a therapist or or my kid needs some kind of psychiatric care or some kind of, I don't even know what care, but I can't find it because, you know, I can't navigate the system. Mm-hmm. And those diagnoses and medications. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So Al, uh, you've mentioned this uh, survey and report a couple times. Is it public? Can we, is it something I could link in the show notes so people could find it if they wanted to read it? Yeah. You should head to the Vermont commission on, on women website for that. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I can send you a direct link to it. I'd appreciate that, Carrie. Yeah, the findings are extensive and I welcome people to to read over them. I think there's a lot of interesting information in there. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, We are out of time in this first segment. I know it went so fast. Uh, So I would love everyone to hang tight and we're going to hear from some underwriters here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro and we'll return in a moment. So hang on. back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on Brattleboro Community Television and uh, many peg stations across Vermont and even in Massachusetts, as well as our Captivate homepage and um, our Facebook page as well. If you are just joining us, I am Olga Peters, and I am speaking with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, Carrie Brown from the Vermont Commission on Women, and Al Johnson-Kurtz from Change the Story. And thank you so much for being here. And we're we're going to try to shove um, decades worth of conversations into like 30 minutes. So everybody fasten your seatbelt. Al, before the break, you, you mentioned a report. Uh, that folks can find at the Vermont Commission on Women that that talk to people about their experience during the pandemic. Um, what can you tell us about what you found with around financial health in in households? What were some of the findings there? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I can say that um, a third, about a third of respondents reported reduced savings during the pandemic. So that just speaks to, you know, people potentially starting to take on debt and that can have 
lingering impacts beyond um, this current moment. Um, and simultaneously with that, about a third of respondents reported an increase in household spending to meet essential needs. Um, so these two things coupled together, I think we're just looking at long-term financial impacts for potentially years to come, um, just based on people's spending and saving um, ability during this, during this pandemic. I find that so interesting, Al. Thank you for sharing that because in my freelance life, when I'm, when I'm doing journalism, I'm hearing from especially financial institutions where they're talking about pent up demand and this concept that folks um, through the direct payments, through maybe not having to spend so much on gas or eating out or whatever their work life used to do since they're home, um, that they do seem to have more savings and, mm. and they do seem to, to have more money now than they did going into the pandemic. Um, so I just, I find those two stories side by side, really, really interesting. Can you shed any insight there or, and it's fine if you can't, but um, I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, one, one other stat that I didn't mention initially was about, you know, people's income and reported income from the 500 respondents. I'm not sure that's going to be able to fully illuminate these two different stories, but um it's basically, we found that 52% of respondents said that their income has remained about the same. 34% um, um, saw a decrease in overall income and only 13% of respondents on increase. Um, so that may speak, that may be because we have 500 respondents, that's not giving a full picture of, um, of Vermont. And, but I would be curious to hear more about the, um, you know, financial institutions, what they're, what they're seeing and, and how that's playing out. Well, and I, I think we can acknowledge that, especially with the financial institutions, what they're seeing are things like uh, mortgage requests, or mm -hmm. um, they're seeing people's savings accounts when they can go in and, and look at, at the numbers. Um, and, and so they're, that's probably a form of self-selection in a, in a little bit of a way. Um, yeah. Right. You have to have a savings account to show up in those right. reports. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Which again goes back to this whole this whole idea that this pandemic has been a very uneven experience mm -hmm. for a lot of a lot of folks. And I think also to request a mortgage, you need to have some savings to be able to pay for your down payment. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not an indication that you have a lot of money at that moment, you know, that's, it's just a request for a, a lending. Um, and so that's a good point. Um, and as with any request for, uh, to take on debt, that's, that's a request to take on debt. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Also, oh, go ahead, Emily, sorry. You know, something that I think we've explored a lot and we need to keep exploring as we enter the next phase of this is the, particular shape of Vermont's economy and how different that is from many other states, um, that we have this enormous percentage of Vermonters who work for nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And of the folks who don't work for nonprofits, that's an enormous percentage of people who work in the service industry. Um, and in different 
types of service industry jobs than we see in other states because um, of how small our businesses are. So we see people working in the service industry for small businesses, and we see this huge percentage of folks working for nonprofits. And both of those sectors do like very specific things that might be different from the general trends of the economy. Um, you know, the scale of our nonprofit sector means that we're incredibly dependent on a particular type of government spending in order for wages to grow to scale or for benefits to grow um, with the service economy, you know, in addition to all of the sexual harassment and all of those things that we've talked about before, we have, you know, just the profound instability in incomes there. Mm-hmm. And so I think that our recovery um, might wind if we do have a recovery or whatever our next thing is, um, in addition to being sort of K-shaped like all the rest of um, the rest of the country, I think it will have its own, I don't know, its own letter or its own shape to the K. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Emily. One thing I'm curious about as well is as we move forward and um, wow, my brain just went well, completely. Here, let me, let me try. Please so one, <laughs> what I mean about, so for instance, if we're talking about policy solutions that work in Vermont for whatever the next stage of our economy is, and we're looking for ways for our social, you know, for our social infrastructure to grow, whether that, you know, we call it benefits or safety nets or whatever we want to, and folks work for nonprofits, that means that their ability to receive benefits or increased wages, as I said, is totally like both has a level of control by the state that is not true in other sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, that because the state contracts with so many of the folks or is in an economic relationship with so many of these organizations, there is the state has a level of bargaining and regulatory power that it does not for the bulk of the private sector. Um, and so that presents tremendous opportunities to both institute like much stronger labor protections, shorter working hours, higher wages, um, socializing benefits. But it also means that that needs to be state dollars that essentially are driving a lot of that. And so that's, um, so what it takes for us to get there feels like an easier policy win in that we have greater control in the legislature over that sector but it also means that any decisions that we make on that, the burden of that needs to be held by the general fund. And in the absence of um, significant more revenue, either from taxes or from the feds, that's really hard to do. And that's sort of the box that we've been trapped in for a while. And, and that, that's the box that we live in, no matter what, because if we weren't contracting with all of these nonprofits to do this work, we would be hiring state employees to do it. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's the work of the state government that needs to be done. And so it's just a matter of how do we, how do we fund that? How do we make that happen? Um, you know, I, I would, I, I really see that as a great opportunity and, and um, amazing power that the state could choose to exercise. And of course the challenge is going to be how to pay for it, but that's, that's always the challenge. And, um, you know, there's also the, thinking about where our values are as a state and what we, how we express those values with the money that we spend. So what would it take, Emily, to, you know, right now, a lot of our benefits um, are attached to a person's work life, 
Mm-hmm. And as Al mentioned, people's ability to work and, and how they can fund their lives are not necessarily the same thing, uh, at least not as aligned as they could be. So what would it take on a policy level to decouple those two things and and base something like healthcare or um, family leave or something like that on the fact that someone lives in Vermont rather than just that they work in Vermont? Mm-hmm. Well, so the direct cash payments that we were talking about that Al brought up um, are, you know, right now at the federal level, they're really tied to what is essentially like a reimbursable tax rebate. Um, That's how, like, that's sort of the mechanism that's being used. And we have those already in state tax policy. I love it when I actually get to bring taxes into one of these conversations because it's really very rare. (laughs) Um, And we have a bunch of reimbursable mechanisms already built into our tax policy, but they're often um, the threshold for them is usually a specific number that never had an inflator built into it when it was originally passed into law. And so if we actually brought those numbers just up to what they would have been if like regular inflators had been built into them at the beginning, that would make a huge difference in Vermonters' lives. Like if we just sort of straightened, if, like, and for, like if basically if we tidied the tax code in that way um, and brought it up into current day reality, that would make a huge difference in terms of people essentially experiencing things as direct payments to families. Um, and they would be annually. And I certainly, you know, there was a decade where my annual tax rebate was what paid for like my entire life to be possible. It was what paid for the car repairs, it's what paid for the back bills, and it's what paid for summer camp, um, like summer daycare. And so, And that could be changed to quarterly payments very easily, you know, if we wanted to sort of better match the feds. And so like, that's very possible. Um, The second thing, I am not gonna touch healthcare. I like, you know, it's been three years I've been in the legislature. I don't really quite understand how Shumlin failed and what memory we're all still like carrying from that and how that keeps the legislature from moving forward. And like, that is still something that I am digging in on and hope to figure out in the next five years. Um, All things, (laughs) healthcare is very, it, it all seems so possible because every other country does it, but yet somehow we still can't do it. But for the rest of the benefits, um, you know, some of that is I introduced a bill um, with the Workers Caucus and the Women's Caucus signing on at the beginning of this last session, at the beginning of the biennium, that required things like reliable and flexible schedules. Um, for anyone who is contracting the state government, that makes a huge difference in people's ability to engage in caregiving. Mm -hmm. Um, in their private lives that requires sort of, you know, salary scales to be matching up with the work that's being done with just like some really basic, very strong labor protections to, that would essentially cover anyone that's contracting with state government. So that would cover a huge sector of Vermont economy. And then there's things like family medical leave being outside of, you know, your relationship to your employer um, or um, childcare benefits being outside of your relationship to your employer And those, you know, family medical leave partly didn't pass last time because of the startup costs. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have really significant one-time dollars right now that maybe could pay for those startup costs this time. Um, And so that feels really possible to make that a universal system instead of a system tied to employers. Um, There's some momentum to tie an an unemployment insurance system actually. that's sort of a parallel 
unemployment insurance system that wouldn't be as tied to employers as the one that's tied to the feds and the unemployment insurance trust fund. Um, and so the one-time dollars that we have right now flowing through from the feds could start up those systems and do the upfront costs, which is what often keeps us from being able to implement systems in Vermont. So those are just like some policy ideas that are floating around, whether or not they can be the one of the five policy ideas that make it across the finish line in May. I have, no idea right now. What do you, you all think? I, you know, I'm glad you brought up the, the bill about the reliable and predictable schedules and, and the other sort of basic protections because that's that would make such a huge difference for people and probably would help get a, at, at least some of this great resignation challenge. And then I understand the frustration about healthcare, but obviously if people didn't have to worry about paying for healthcare, I can't even imagine yeah. what that would be like, you know, it's so it's better than it used to be, but it's still just ridiculous for so many people. It's just such a huge proportion of their, of their income. Um, and then childcare, you know, we, I think we need to recognize the, that we all benefit from children being well taken care of. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have recognized that we all benefit from children going to school. And so we figured out a way to collectively pay for that. So that people don't have parents don't have to pay for that out of their you know they don't have to write a check. I'm 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 impatient for the day when we figure the same thing out about childcare. Mm -hmm. And we did sort of on childcare, just so folks know, we have made a lot of really significant steps policy wise yeah. on this. Um, really like upping the rate upping, increasing, um, and setting up mechanisms for much higher pay for workers and are on a timeline that if we continue passing the legislation that we set up in our timeline, childcare workers should be making salaries that are comparable to um, elementary school teachers and should have their education mostly paid for. Um, families shouldn't be paying more than 10% of their income on childcare. And there is some hope that um, the feds will help us pay for that um, if everything possibly works out. But there's a study that's going to come out next summer um, that really sets up a system for us to pay for all of those things. And that how we're able or not able to implement that, implement that study is going to really be where the where we see what's possible for us. And that's a long time away. Um, two years is a long time to wait for yeah. work. This might be nerdy, but um, you asked kind of what was most exciting to us and any of the tax code updates, I feel like are, you know, just core. It's Aww. like our tax code is, is, our, is our kind of expression of our moral value. I used to work for Zephyr Teachout and that was one of the things that she talked about. And um, so giving credit where it's due there, but ensuring that we can pay for things um, and that we have the mechanisms in place to do so, that feels really base to any of these conversations. So I appreciate that that's top of your mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, one thing I, I just want to point out or, or name here, it's interesting, we, we started this conversation talking about women in the workplace, and how it has evolved, um, quite naturally, just talking about people in the workplace, um, and maybe not specifically speaking about gender. And, and to me, it just, 
um, going back to, I, I keep going back to what Carrie said about just because people know about something, they don't necessarily want to change it. Um, it just goes back to me about, um, but if we do implement things that are better for women in the workplace, it, it just ripples out so quickly to, to everyone in the workplace. And so I guess it goes back to me about being a little bit of a no brainer, <laughs> yeah, but I don't know. What are you? Yeah. yeah, no, that's exactly true. And I mean, it's been part of the argument for forever, for as long as I've been aware that we need to, if we improve things for women, we're going to improve things for everybody. Um, it's like when, uh, when you, when you're in school and you have kids who have trouble sitting still and learning in the, the, the kind of standard ways, if you, I used to be a teacher briefly. And so this is one of the things I learned. If you come up with, with, the, with creative ways to, to help those kids, um, suddenly everybody's doing better. Like, <laughs> so, so it's, yeah, it's, um, it's absolutely true. Al, anything you want to add? No, I'm just grateful for you all for having us on and for opening this conversation. I hope it continues. Mm -hmm. um, well, I wanted to go back to your report quickly. I, I don't know if this touches on it because I haven't read it. But, you know, one thing I'm very curious about is just as we try to transition systems, um, mm -hmm. especially financial systems, I, I keep hearing from folks about, for lack of a better term, benefit cliffs. And, mm -hmm. you know, and, and how sometimes their transition can be halted because mm -hmm. they're stuck between, well, I can make more money, but then I lose all these other things that have been supporting my life. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk to that at all? Are you seeing anything in this report or are you seeing anything in your the rest of your your work life that can can talk to that? Carrie, I think you might be best suited on this one with. The commission's research. I can try because we have spent a lot of time talking about this, um, as Emily will remember when we were talking about the minimum wage, and that was a big concern of the Commission on Women. I confess that I have a fairly simplistic, probably based on ignorance view of this, where to me it looks like just give more money and in this this area or you know, change the the requirements for the benefits. I mean, it just, I, I'm not sure why it is so hard. I, I know why it's so hard <laughs> because every different program has its own different requirements and its own different levels and, and all of that. Um, but if we kind of go back to what you were talking about, Al, of making sure that people can just live. And if that's kind of our principle of do people have enough money to be able to, to live, then I think that helps simplify this benefits cliff issue a lot more so that, you know, um, if we're just um, giving people money uh, and making sure that they have what they need and there's kind of a unified view to it, I mean, I, obviously I'm oversimplifying this, but, um, you know, I know that there's, it's so, it's so complex in the structure in state government, but I do think that if state government wants to figure this out, they can kind of get together and look at all of these programs and figure out what is the unifying approach to this so that people are not, um, they're not penalized for advancing economically. So when they start to make more money, they have a chance to have some savings. So you're, you know, looking at things like the, how, how much they have in savings, the means test and um, changing those so that it is possible to actually get ahead. 
again, it would probably involve the state spending more money. <laughs> I do think we're starting to, I think we're getting better at talking about that. Um, yeah. I think we're getting better at naming where the troughs and the cliffs are. I think we're getting better at saying perhaps maybe when we build a new system, we should align it with the other system so that there isn't a different threshold for everything. And I think we're going to continue learning things as we continue through the pandemic, because there are a lot of programs where thresholds were lifted or where recertifications were paused that we've seen people staying enrolled that would have been sort of kicked off of those benefits previously. And we're seeing the incredible good that comes of that. And so that's true of Medicaid, that's true of um, food stamps, some food stamp thresholds, and that's true of free and reduced of lunch, school lunches. And so I think we're gonna, and we've seen the reach up TANF thresholds change during the pandemic. And so I think there's gonna be a lot to learn from sort of the human benefits of that a couple years out when we can look at it more. I'm realizing that we are over time, no? Nope, we still have five minutes. <laughs> oh, okay, thanks. I'm gonna be, um, great. I think I was supposed to be somewhere at 9.30 and I didn't oh. say that at the beginning. So I will be late for that meeting. And now that I am awkwardly saying all this out loud on the show, I thought I would add that the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the hosts and the guests and not any of the stations that the show is broadcast on because I forgot to say that after the break today. And so I forgot to now. So, okay. <laughs> so I, I know this is uh, maybe a lot to try to squeeze into the last five minutes, but I think what all of you just said kind of echoed for me is I'm wondering, we're really getting good at, at looking at the problem and, and seeing where people are struggling, struggling. But I notice in a lot of economic things when I read about um, kind of thriving, for lack of a better term, we actually don't define that in so many ways. And I know in one way it's very personal, what one people, one person considers success, another person may not. But do we have in place um, benchmarks for what it, what it means, at least on an economic level, for someone to be doing well? It seems like maybe we don't define that. And so do we even know what benchmarks we're going for? Well, one of those uh, stats that we use for the Change the Story report is the um, Joint Fiscal Office's um, benchmark for uh, livable uh, wage, right? Am I using that correctly, Carrie? Yeah. Yeah. Um, basic so, needs budget, being able to cover your basic needs. Yeah. Thank you. That's yes. Appreciate it. Um, and so that is a place we could look. I don't know how updated that is. I don't know, um, you know, since 2019 um, and with the pandemic, whether there have been changes made to that. Maybe, you know, Emily, but um, that is one place we could look. I also just um Going back to the mental health piece, I think looking at some stats for the state about the level of stress people are under and how that relates to income, that can give us some further information about where the line needs to be mm. where people stop experiencing financial related panic attacks, depression, um, mental health impacts. Oh, I love that idea. Thank you, Al. Um, Carrie and Emily, anything else you want to add before we head out? I 
just want to say I'm also grateful to be having these conversations. I super miss my commission on women time with the two of you. And so thanks for coming and having this conversation together. Do you, do you want to yeah. toast to that, Emily? Because we, I realize we haven't toasted recently, so we should. So thank you, Al. Thank you, Carrie, for being here today. I want to toast you for all the work you do and uh, for being willing to come back and have this conversation with us over and over and over again. Cheers. 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 Um, thank you. If you want to find more information on some of the things we talked about today, you can go to the Vermont Commission on Women's website. You can also uh, look up Change the Story. I will be adding some things to the show, show notes on our Captivate page and on our iTunes page. As always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. Emily, where can folks find you? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you will find links to all of my social medias and um, phone numbers and all the things to get all in touch. All the pertinent details, yes. All the pertinent details. <laughs> Thank you, Carrie. Thank you, Al. Thank you.